Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have some awesome guests. Paul Lucas Hofschmidt and Isabel Wellberry are the co-founders of Alpha Sophia. In this episode, we talk about what is Alpha Sophia and how do they help you find your target customers, effective go-to-market strategies, why crafting your story is so important, and why user research is vital to success. This is a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. But first, a word from our sponsors. Supercharge your outreach by finding the right person with the help of Alpha Sophia. Alpha Sophia helps you accelerate your medtech product adoption by helping you find and engage the right physicians with a leading commercial intelligence platform for medtech startups and SMBs for a fraction of the cost of traditional email lists. Set up a call today by going to www.alphasophia.com backslash Zane. Now on to the episode. Hey guys, today we have some awesome guests here today. We have Paul and Isabel. Hey guys, how are you doing? Hi, thanks for meeting Hi. with us. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm really excited about this. Um, if, before we get going, uh, do you guys got, mind giving us a little background about yourselves? Um, and, you know, we can kind of go from there. Isabel, sure. we can start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Isabel. Um, I'm German-American. And, uh, you know, once upon a time, I started um, in psychology and uh, I worked in product development and user experience for a number of years. Um, but I've always been really passionate about sort of go to market as a topic. So I've moved more and more over to the commercialization side. Um, and currently with Paul and uh, our co-founder Robin, um, I'm working at Alpha Sophia, um, which is a software for commercial intelligence. So that kind of closes the circle for me on go to market because on the one hand, I get to think about the go-to-market of our company, but I also get to work with lots of customers on their go-to-market. That's awesome. Hey, so what about you, Paul? Yeah, I'm, I'm, my story is a little bit different. So I actually started out uh, studying philosophy back in the day. I wanted to become a journalist originally, and then somehow ended up uh, working as a strategy consultant for five years. Um, and that, that was really the first time I really got in touch with a lot of data for clients I work with. I mainly work with uh, retail and consumer goods companies where you can imagine they have billions, billions and billions of data points uh, for every transaction that is going on um, and yeah, supported them basically making that data actionable and transforming it back into live business decisions, which then have a, a, a top and bottom line effect for those companies. Um, at the same time, I started building my first company, I think seven years ago um, uh, and kept on doing that. Um, building companies, starting to angel invest into startups at some point. Um, and since 2022, I'm now building Alpha Sophia together with Isabel, my co-founder Robin, um, uh, where we, as Isabel said, aim to uh, bring that data uh, capability and power uh, I've experienced in other industries uh, to the medical device, health tech, uh, pharma sectors uh, to enable especially smaller companies, startups and SMBs to, to uh, be better at their uh, data intelligence and, and uh, consequentially uh, have a better uh, marketing and sales uh, success. Yeah, no. Um, and, and yeah, and I do want to get into what um, I do want to get into what you guys do. Actually, we can start there. Like, so what does Alpha Sophia do? I think you guys have a really interesting product at a really great price point for what you guys offer. Isabel, do you want to take that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so Alpha Sophia is a software and what we do is we help companies who have a medical product or a service um, where they want to get in touch with physicians to sell to them, we help them slice and dice their market. So they can come into our tool and they can say, well, I'm looking for providers who are focusing on this area, who are billing the following codes, who are in this region, and who are also on LinkedIn. And sort of by placing filters in a really easy way, they can uncover their target market. There's a couple other nifty things that they can do in the tool when it comes to, to targeting. You know, they can figure out their market size. They can figure out how to reach out to providers. They can get in-depth profiles. But in a nutshell, what we really do is we make it very easy to find those target customers for you as a company. Yeah, and that's one of the 
The biggest challenges, I think, for, I mean, really any sector, but, but specifically health tech is because I think healthcare in general, we're so, even, even when we're taught in school, we're told to not talk to sales, not talk to marketing. So we're very, mm-hmm. we're very, very insulated. Um, there's many levels mm-hmm. before you can get to somebody who can make a decision. Um, and a lot of time it is, you don't know who to reach out to. You're just kind of rapid shot, like, you know, okay, well, let's just try somebody in the company and maybe they'll guide us somewhere. So I think what you guys are doing really helps cut a lot of that time away. I mean, yeah, I mean, you still have to reach out to them and they still have to reciprocate, but at least you're not like reaching out to random people and hoping that they're the right person to reach out to. Definitely. I think actually a lot of the companies we speak to, they don't even know how big their addressable market is to Mm -hmm. begin with. So they might say, you know, I'm interested in orthopedic surgeons. And I would say, well, which ones? Or, you know, how many of those would even need your device? And they kind of shrug and then they say, oh, yeah, well, a lot. (laughs) And a lot's not really a good answer when it comes to marketing or building your company. Because as you said, you can lose a lot of time on the kind of guesstimating who might be right. And so we we hope to kind of create a little bit of a shortcut for for those companies. No, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, please go. Especially in, 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 in medical device, for example, um, where you have those big med tech companies who already have sales reps in every in every county um, and every zip code. Um, uh, and they basically can play that spray and pray strategy where they just walk into every hospital every every other day and and talk to basically anyone who could be a target. Um, that is usually just not possible for, for smaller companies. Um, and if you're a startup, at every stage, you have to you have to go through certain further proof points at the beginning, uh, building a product and getting regulatory approval. But then at some point you need to go out there and start selling and need to show with a small first cohort of potential customers that you're actually able to sell that to them. And then it's really crucial that your limited uh, marketing and sales budget and, and time and resources are spent on those people who are probably early adopters who are more likely to start using your product in the beginning than becoming champions later on while you grow into uh, into a larger uh, uh, sales footprint over time. Yeah. And uh, no, I completely agree with you. And it's like, so like kind of initially to like the total addressable market, you know, at least in the United States, you know, it says like we spend 4.5 trillion with a T in dollars in healthcare. So that brings a lot of people into healthcare. And, yep. but the problem is it's healthcare is such a huge topic. And like you said, you know, oh, we're looking at surgeons. Well, what kind of surgery? There's orthopedic, there's, you know, they're doing hip and even in orthopedics, there's a lot of subsets and you cannot build something that, that functions for everyone equally. You have to really like mm-hmm. start niching down and finding that niche is I, f- I find a lot of health tech companies find it really hard. And this kind of goes into like the go-to-market strategy that we can kind of talk mm-hmm. about is, you know, I, I think a lot of health tech companies start really broad and then eventually they figure out, oh, we need to niche down when it should be really the other way around. They should really find mm-hmm. that niche. And that's where mm-hmm. companies like you kind of try to help them find that is, you know, how many people are in this specific subspecialty and, you know, where are they? Are they in my market? Are they, you know, are they close to me? Are they not close to me? And then you, that kind of helps make your decision, even maybe before you even build the product, right? Because that, I mean, we're talking about Definitely. before that, you know, you're not even spending money, let, you know, you're doing some research beforehand, which honestly everyone should be doing. Absolutely. I mean, we, we do have quite a lot of customers actually using our product pre-commercialization and uh, and even using it as an input factor for their product development, um, where they just do research about uh, which types of procedures are developing, which direction, what, what is growing, what is shrinking. Um, uh, but then also to find uh, in the early stage of the startup of a health tech company, you might want to find some key opinion leaders who might want to join your board uh, or be advisors at an early stage to then help you make the crucial decisions uh, to shape the product in a way that it has a chance of, of, event, of mass, mass distribution at some point in the future. So um, I think um, uh, a solution like this, this is in the end, it's a, it's a connector. Yeah? It's, a, it's a way of uh, finding the right people to talk to um, and, and learning a lot about them so that you can uh, fulfill their needs at some point. Um, and um, I mean, we are in, in, all, in all industries, you always say you have to work from the customer backwards. Uh, and what we've basically did is a big um, yeah, direct, directory uh, with a lot of information on all those providers, on all those customers in the end, um, uh, to understand their needs better and then build something for them. Maybe to 
kind of tie it also to what you were saying before, Zane, I think everyone knows that they need to validate their product idea. I think that bell has been rung. I think that's sort of been established. But the issue is that there's a lot of situations where you feel like you're validating your idea, but what you're actually doing is you're speaking to your very specific network. So you might know a lot of farm MDs who could give you feedback on a product innovation that you have in that area. Is that going to be representative of the market, right? So I think a lot of companies we speak to, they're doing their best, they're doing user research to some extent, but maybe they're limiting it because they're only looking at the Rolodex, you know, the market that's already in their Rolodex and expanding beyond that is actually where, you know, the real value is created. And sometimes we also learn how you need to pivot. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to get honest feedback from people that you know really well. There's very few yeah. people in your network um, that will kind of use tell them an idea and be like, you know, that sucks. Right. Because mm -hmm. no one wants to hurt anyone's feelings. Like, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, saying that's a great idea. And guess what? Um, that person that told me it's a great idea right when it launches, guess who's not buying that product? The person that told me it's a great idea. And I think it's yeah. really, really important. I think vital it's, is to go out of your network and really try to flesh out your idea and try to find people that will poke holes in it. Even if you may not agree with it or not, it's just, it's, it's just the best thing for you to do. Yeah. Um, because yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people I've talked to and they say, yeah, you know, this is a billion dollar idea and this and that, and I was expecting this and that. And they launch and I mean, it sucks. And they're just sitting there waiting for these orders to pile in or these calls to come in and nothing mm. happens. Mm. Yeah, that's of course very painful if you launch and there's crickets. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, I no, and then and the other thing that I do want to touch to, and I don't want to bury this at all. And I think price is a big, big thing for startups, right? Everyone oh. is trying to cut costs. Everyone's, you know, everyone's trying to be lean and mean, right? Um, and these lists exist, right? These lists of these massive lists of things exist, but they are very, very, very expensive. So do you guys want to kind of talk about uh, kind of your pricing structure and then also compared to uh, other lists that already exist? Sure. Um, so in general, as you said, um, solutions like this do exist in the market. Um, I think we still do a few things quite differently, but from a pure pricing perspective, um, I mean, what I've seen in my past, I've worked with a, with a medtech company here in Germany, and uh, we did um, the ideation, the conception phase, and tried to get some market data, to, uh, try to buy that. Uh, and uh, the, the offer we got for basically an Excel sheet was like the same you could spend on a brand new car. And I was like, oh, that's, I mean, that's not possible. It's, it's a little bit in healthcare. It's a little bit like, like a marriage, right? Yeah. Um, if you, if you have the sticker healthcare on something, the price is, is, is always five times as much. The same thing if you, I don't know, <laughs> ask for, for a location to rent for your marriage, it's also the same, um, it, it just goes up. So, uh, what we try to do is, um, uh, have a solution which plays at par or better compared to the solution, which big pharma and big medtech. Uh, have in their in-house business intelligence departments with uh, an army of data scientists, but make it really easy yeah, and usable by the sales and marketing people where you don't need extra resources for, for, for data scientists and then price it at a transparent price point really flat. So um, uh, our solution, uh, we currently price it at $400 a month um, and um, uh, that includes uh, three user seats and that includes all the insights we have. Um, and uh, uh, I think we are the only company actually in that market who have their price point on their website transparently viewable for anyone. Um, so um, um, uh, we don't do what other players sometimes do where they first look at their customer, check out how much money they raise or how much revenue they are making and then give them a price quote in, in, in correspondence to that. Uh, we are completely transparent about that and, and, and just aim to have like really widespread distribution to, and especially empower those younger innovators to, to play at par um, uh, with those larger companies who of course have much more resources. Yeah, and uh, when we, we when we talked before, when you guys were showing me the demo um, and you told me the price and I was like, oh my God, I, did, I didn't believe it. I thought you were like joking because it, it honestly guys, it is pretty cheap, right? I'm not, and I'm not saying that to make you guys feel good, but I do think, but I do think people don't realize how expensive those other lists are like you said they're sometimes it's the price of a car and as mm -hmm. a as a startup as a lean startup when you're trying to 
when you're trying to save money, you're trying to save marketing, like you don't have a rep in every single state or every single region. You have to be very targeted and very deliberate with the, with who you approach and how you approach them. And sometimes those lists you get are not curtailed, right? Like in, like you mentioned, like in your software, you can literally filter out exactly what you need, right? When you get a mm-hmm. list, it's like an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, for the most part, right? I mean, it's a little bit more, and, but it's basically an Excel spreadsheet that you're kind of going through. And it takes a lot of time. So I think there's value in that as well. And then also the ease of use, right? I think that as, as somebody who's seen it uh, firsthand, um, it's like any normal filter that we are all accustomed to, like in a shopping cart, right? You're on the size, you're figuring out the size, what t-shirt you want, whatever. It's like you guys have literally mimicked that kind of user experience uh, for something that is a little bit more expensive than buying a t-shirt. And I think I think that you guys, I don't, I, and I don't want people to, I don't want that to be kind of buried in, in all of this. I think that's a very important thing because you have a lot of people, like you said, they're not data scientists. They're not this, you know, some, some, some of them might just have like a you know, healthcare background or a tech background or whatever. Right. Or they're, there's somebody that had a problem. Like it's very hard to find somebody who can really look at data, filter it out and do it well. And, you know, having that done for you saves a lot of time and a lot of money. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I, we try to also highlight this to our customers. That there's kind of two price points. There's one what you pay up front for a software or an Excel list, whatever it's going to be. But then there's also the cost of maintaining that of in your team, having someone who's full-time querying that data. So we want to be a more affordable solution on both fronts to kind of save that user experience time that's usually spent querying, make it super easy. I mean, any rep in their car can use our tool. Um, VP sales can sit there and strategize deeply for hours on their laptop. So it's very much flexible. Um, and that's kind of two sort of cost points that, that all figure together and make a big difference for smaller players. Yeah, no. And, um, so I do, and so, yeah, I do want to kind of pivot into something that I find interesting. You guys have some interesting thoughts on go-to-market strategies, uh, for B2B healthcare businesses. Uh, do you guys going to kind of um enlighten us on some of those thoughts sure um i think in general and isabel you can uh, can uh, uh, yeah double down on uh, the bigger picture i, I want to shape i think in general what becomes more and more important is having not a single stream strategy where you just say okay i'm going to go with the direct sales force or i'm going to hire distributors or i'm going to go full d2c uh, or, or only social but um uh, learning from other industries where this is already much more common, uh, especially consumer goods or, or e-commerce, um, having a well-rounded omni-channel strategy where you basically play all channels and then create multiple touch points with your potential customers until they then eventually might become a customer at some point in the future gets more and more important. I mean, we all know how difficult it is to just get a few minutes of time with a with physician uh, and and uh, and pitch them your ideas. They're super busy. They have a lot of other stuff to do. They're trying to be sold multiple times a day. Yeah. So that's like those two minutes or five minutes are the are so are really really precious. Um. And what oftentimes just works better is not having that one shot game where you try to show up there and have your three minutes of time, but actually creating touch points over time, making them familiar with your brand. Um. And uh, and then after some time, you've probably warmed up those uh, potential customers and then they are then open to listen to you after they've heard you a few times and some interest uh, um, uh, has woken. Uh, but maybe Isabel, you can take it from there. Yeah, I mean, that's something we, we really strongly believe, right? Omnichannel is sort of the way forward here. I think if you're just sending emails and hoping to run into clinicians at conferences, it's going to be a very long road to commercial success uh, for your product or service. Um, I think within that, though, our observation is that, you know, a lot of these companies are underinvesting in their storytelling. So if you go omnichannel, make sure that you actually have a compelling narrative to put out there. Um, healthcare and B2B and those things in combination are a lot about managing risk for your customer. So making them feel comfortable is a great and important thing to do. And often you can only accomplish that with really great storytelling and really strong brand. And our observation has been that a lot of companies say, well, a brand storytelling, that's fancy stuff. We'll do that down the line. But we actually have the opposite thinking that when you're small, that's where it really makes a big difference because you can put yourself out there, tell your story, and that will stick in the mind of your customer in a way that's going to be very difficult to accomplish if you're just using that traditional 
kind of way of going about it. And I don't know how it is for you, Zane, but I mean, I look at a lot of these solutions and there's a big blur in my head when it comes to, you know, 10 different AI clinical assistant companies. I couldn't tell you the difference. And I really spent a lot of time on their websites. So I think differentiating strongly and then putting that every single place that your audience is, that's where you're going to see a lot of traction. And that's maybe that's something that's not happening enough. I 100% agree. I'm I'm huge on uh, storytelling and branding. <clears throat> and I think that people, branding is not a logo. Like that's, I, I think we're, I think yeah. I can, I'm not trying to speak for you guys, but I think we're pretty clear on that on together. Branding, your brand is not your logo. Your brand is how you make people feel. And if mm -hmm. you're a small company, and especially in healthcare, and, and you need to build that trust and you need to make them feel like they can trust you. And the only way that you can make them feel that is by working on your branding, working on your messaging, working on your story. Do you, you know, it's, I spend a lot of time looking at health tech companies a lot, you know, and one of the most frustrating things for me is, you know, you go on their, go on their website, you know, they have all this like jargon, but they don't tell like me exactly what they do and how they do it. Like the basic part, like just literally the mm -hmm. basic things, like what you're doing and how you're doing it. And you know, what yeah. kind of ROI, like how can you help me, right? I don't want to, I don't want to, especially when you're a smaller company, it's going to be very hard for people, for you, for you to get people to just reach out to you, right? So you need mm -hmm. to make it easy for them and you need to make it compelling for them to reach out to you. Like on your website, if it says quickly in five seconds, if I can't figure out what you do and how you do it and how you can help me, I'm sorry, you've lost me. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of pe people fight against me on that. They're like, oh no, it's more than that. No, it's the truth. I mean, look at how you as a person go through and when you're looking at websites, when you're looking for products to buy, when you're looking at things, how much time are you willing to give that product to get you to come in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right observation. I think when I ask um, companies about that, when I say, you know, why don't you get more specific on your landing page? Or why don't you tell that story in you know, a video from your founder? Um, something that I often hear is that there's sort of a fear of specificity leading to kind of losing some potential customers. Right. So, well, we actually do so much. And if I'm super specific in my tagline on my hero section, then somebody's going to be put off. But the counter effect, right, is that a lot of people are put off because they just can't even find themselves in, in what you're putting out there. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I find I, I kind of find that funny because I I've heard that before, too. And I, I think to me, that shows that you don't know exactly what you're building. Right. I think right now mm -hmm. you're in the stage of still discovery like you might have a product out there you might have even some sales but you're still in the discovery phase all right and you, mm -hmm. you if you can't tell me exactly who your customer is and what that persona is like you can't you know the, we're looking for a this person in this specific field in this age range making this much money getting this many patients per month or week or whatever or doing this many surgeries if you cannot systematically tell me exactly who your persona is who your who your pe who the people you're selling to you don't have a product and 0% of $0 is zero, you know? And I think that, that that's one of the issues that people have is that they're selling to everyone, but no one really understands how they're helping them specifically. And you can't, that messaging gets really muddy because they might see one thing, you know, one day they see, oh yeah, we're doing surgery. Then the other day, like, oh, we're helping PCP. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. as a surgeon, you're like seeing the PC, it's like, what? And if as a PCP, you're like, like it just is very confusing. Yeah. I mean, what we actually did before, while we were still building that product um, and we were not launched yet, uh, we already talked to I think 150 potential users in the industry. And I was always quite transparent. I was like, we are currently building this and this. It's going to be, be looking like that. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, would that be useful? What are you missing? What are your current pain points you're having? How could that address your pain points and so on? Um, and we basically, to be honest, we, we started selling before we actually had the product and then sign people up on a waiting list to approach them later on. But at the same time, this was just pure customer research. Yeah? Um, we heard raw stories about what is currently going well, what's not going well, what actually problems they're having, how competitor products do address some of those use cases, but sometimes the sheer usability uh, um, hinders uh, the, the widespread use within the organization. So my, my suggestion to all founders and health tech, but across industries is talk to customers before you write a first line of code, before you buy the first components uh, for your for your MVP medical device, just be excessively talking to customers all day and actually never stop. Yeah? Um, so 
Isabel and I, we talk to many customers every week and uh, we have in our internal Slack channel, we have a voice of the of voice of the customer channel where whenever we hear something we haven't heard before about a potential feature that would be interesting uh, or, or note about our product, we, we write that down, discuss it with our tech team in our, in our next meeting and try to basically feed our product development pipeline directly from the customer. Of course, we sometimes have our own uh, up initial ideas we just come up with, but the, the best are actually always the ones who are, which are coming from the customer. And um, I think, um, especially in healthcare, especially with solutions where you have regulatory, regulatory approval points and companies are quite long in a pre-commercialization phase where they are like, mm -hmm. I have to build and then I have to go through so many uh, regulatory steps and so on. It can be uh, um, uh, an excuse for talking to customers excessively at an early stage, and then when those customers, actually, those companies actually hit market at some point, the organization and culture is not shaped in a way to be completely customer centric, and that can be a death sentence for any kind of company. So I would, yeah. I mean, even if you're still pre-commercial for two more years, talk to customers all the time. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, I think we, we definitely live that. Maybe one also practical benefit of doing that in terms of selling early is that what I do when I'm sort of drafting marketing copy or thinking about content is I look at the direct quotes that we wrote down from customers. So not just the content of the idea, but actually what's the lingo, right? Because if you're new to an industry or if you're selling to someone who's not exactly you, right? You need to pick up those keywords. You need to figure out, is it short sentences? Is it long sentences? Do they you know, pick up on a certain type of storyline? Do they like metaphors? Do they use a lot of alliteration? And we've tried to not mimic that, but pick that up and include that so that we can actually be a part of the conversation because we've sort of become and spent time in that ecosystem. So you absorb it also through those customer interviews, and then you can really recycle that in your marketing, in your outreach messages, um, and become sort of even more immersed. So even if the product idea isn't always, you know, something you can use today, you can always use the way that they speak, the way that they think about the industry, what they read, and so on. Man, you guys are making you guys are putting a smile on my face because this is this is some amazing stuff. <laughs> First thing I want to do 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 want to touch on is you said you talked to 150 customers before you guys wrote a line of code. How long did that take? The only reason I'm asking is because I want people to hear this and know that it doesn't happen like in a week. Yeah, so I mean, I think we, we for two months, we talked to customers while we didn't start developing, then we started developing at the same time. So there was an overlap between both phases. Um, and to be honest, the first customers we just acquired uh, by cold messaging potential customers on LinkedIn and uh, having a two sentence pitch um, uh, and asking if they're interested in becoming a beta user uh, at some point uh, and if they want to jump on a call. And uh, I can still remember uh, that first call um, where I was talking uh, to a regional sales manager from a big medtech company um, and that call last was sitting in his car, he had some windshield time, was talking to me in the end for 45 minutes uh, and in the end we were discussing about how to think about different types of customer personas and how you could uh, use data to basically uh, uh, um, uh, assign uh, personas to different groups from early adopter to more data-driven or scientific-driven and so on. Um, and uh, and we didn't have, we, did, we had nothing built at that point. I was also totally transparent about that, of course, but having that sparing partner who had more than 20 years of experience in the industry was like the first ign uh, ignition uh, for everything we built afterwards. And um, um, how long did it take? I think in the end, we built our product so from first customer interview to commercial start, it took something like nine months. Uh, and during that time, of course, we did a lot of other things, uh, building infrastructure, uh, closing our fundraising round and so on. But we kept on talking to customers every other day. Um, and that, uh, uh, that just, I think, led to a situation where we were able to launch to market and directly um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, start off the ground with customers uh, being excited about our product because even though it was fresh on the market, every, it seemed to the customers like something that was really shaped uh, for their use case. Yeah, and um, and then product market fit is something that's very elusive for many different country uh, companies. The easiest way to find product market fit is go talk to the 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 market, you know, the customer, 
and ask mm-hmm. them what the fit should be, right? I mean, they, they, they will literally guide you towards the product market fit. You sh- it's not something, I think we sometimes overcomplicate product market fit, but I think a lot of it has to do with people don't take the time that is necessary to really figure out what that product should be, what that fit is, what the market wants, not what the market needs. Because sometimes the market doesn't, the mar- sometimes you can be too early. Like you can have a great idea, mm-hmm. a great solution, but the market just isn't ready for it right yet. They might mm-hmm. need it right away, but what the market wants right now is what you need to build. And maybe you can move into what it needs later on, but I think that's one thing. But you won't figure that out unless unless you are a unicorn and you know it. I mean, you, you, there are people that you know can do it on their own, but majority of the times you have to talk to the customer. Like it's, it's just not, I think it's a step that's overlooked so often. And it's one of the easy, I shouldn't say easiest, it's, it is difficult, mm. but it's one of the mm. most like low hanging fruit in, product, in the product development cycle. Yeah. yeah. And also what you're saying, I think sometimes what you're saying leads to the conclusion of founders that they need to build a product, which is like completely new, that they need to invent a whole new category that hasn't existed before. Uh, and sometimes people are afraid of, of categories where there are also other players already in, the, in that game. But um, I believe it's sometimes even an advantage for to start in a category uh, which already exists and then build a product there and then on, innovate on top and, and uh, adjust your products to have a slightly different angle um, and, and, and make it better over time than maybe have a set, second vertical at some point, which is adjacent to your original product, but addresses the same target customer and so on. The advantage of that often is um, that you already have educated customers. The customer already understands what the category is. So uh, I actually, I tell my customers quite often who potential other solutions in the market are and and tell them, check them out, have a look. And if they are a better fit for you, I'm really happy for you. I mean, I want to make you successful. And if you have checked them out and you find that our solution is the best for you use case, I'm really happy to, to welcome you back, but uh, shop around, uh, make up your mind. And we are really clear about our positioning of being best solution for startups and SMBs and health tech and med tech uh, and biotech and so on. So anyone looking to distribute at some time point to, to, to healthcare providers, uh, but there might be use cases which we don't perfectly address. And then I'm really happy for my customers or potential customers to, to go to another solution. And at some point in the future, if their use case might change, they might come back. And um, most significant markets you, you want to address as a startup are large enough uh, to have, had, have multiple players in there. Um, and uh, then it's often actually better of having those. I mean, they are not really, they are competitors, but they are just also other players in that game. And then you can just work together and make that market or that category bigger as a whole. And that can be really powerful for everyone. Yeah, I think also, you know, kind of building on that, what, what you were saying and, and Paul was saying is that, you know, sometimes when I hear podcasts or I read things, people think of this customer research as sort of a chore that they need to get through, right? And it's like, yeah, did you do customer research? Yes, I did. It's actually once you find a way to do this and you connect with people in your industry, it's really a delight, right? In healthcare, we've had so many hilarious, inspiring, frustrating, all kinds of conversations. And you get to be in touch with people, you know, from all walks of life in very different contexts. And so I think seeing it, yes, it derives enormous value for your product. In fact, I would say you're probably, you know, really off base if that's something you're not investing in doing. Um, especially at the leadership level, everyone should be speaking to customers and having a good sense of customer research. But it's also just on it from a human perspective, you know, whatever happens to your company or your product, you walk away with a much richer experience of the field that you were in. And maybe your next idea is something that comes out of that conversation. So I would really encourage folks not to see it as a chore that they have to get through. I understand that sometimes, you know, maybe there's apprehension, there's fear. But it's actually a huge unlock of just being a part of the community and the industry that you want to place your product into. 100%. And then it kind of goes back to you guys' initial point is it gives you multiple touch points as well, right? Like as you're mm-hmm. building the product, it gives you multiple touch points with that customer, it builds mm-hmm. that trust over time. And then yeah. you're, as you're talking to these customers, they'll be like, when you do release that product and you've talked to enough customers, guess what? They're more likely to trust you because they're like, oh, I talked to Isabel and Paul you know, months ago, yes. and they were talking about this. And guess what? The product came out and they listened to me, right? I think that's one thing that you t- people take for granted is there's a lot of lip service given. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. We've mm-hmm. talked to this. We've done this. We've done that. But very few people actually deliver on the feedback. 
right? So mm -hmm. as you're doing customer research and you're actually, like you said, it's not a chore. It should be fun for you because you will, if you find, if you're finding the right product market fit, you will find so much enthusiasm because if it's a problem that really needs to be solved, people will be enthusiastic. People will be more than willing to help you out in terms, not monetarily maybe, but just by, you know, get, grabbing on a phone call for 30 minutes or so on, whatever. And it can really energize you. Yeah, it can be a little frustrating too, 100%, but it, it can be more energizing than not because it, once you find the right path, right? But if you if you find that it's being really frustrating and you're not finding what you want, probably means you're probably going down the wrong road. And mm -hmm. that's much easier to do before you spend hundreds or millions of dollars into something and then find out later on. But I do want to touch on one other thing that uh, Isabel, you had mentioned the language in mimicking, mimicking mm. language of the people that you're talking to. And I think that's a very, it's a very important thing and a very strong thing. I don't want to overlook that because mm -hmm. I think, you know, you know they, they talk about when you're negotiating with people, you're talking to people, one of the best ways of mm -hmm. doing one, one of the best ways of talking to somebody is mimicking their language, their, their mannerisms or whatever, because they feel, they feel like they can trust you. And this is not meant to like be you're tricking them or whatever, but they feel right. like they're talking to somebody like themselves, right? And they feel like they can trust right. you because now you understand where they're coming from. And I think that's one thing that people don't put enough intention into is really understanding how that market talks. How are they talking? Mm -hmm. What words they're using? Because even sometimes, sometimes the words or the jargon they're using might not make any sense to you, but it makes sense to them. Um, yeah. And it you and it's just a very easy thing that you can do in your marketing material is just use the way they just the way they talk and just fired back at them because they'll they'll understand it much easier and much better. Definitely. I think you need to be a little bit of an anthropologist when you're first setting up your, your marketing materials and things like that, right? I think you embrace that. You look at what are they listening to? Why do they like this? What can I take away from that? And then, you know, don't totally imitate it. Don't be a fraud, but try to sort of take the best pieces of that and then play it back. So, I mean, one really practical example, I remember for a while, I had a lot of calls and I kept saying orthopedic surgery physician. And then for a while I noticed, you know, everyone's always saying orthopod back to me. Maybe I need to start using that vocabulary, right? So to kind of pick up where it makes sense, um, clarify if you have questions, but you'll resonate much more. If you look at sort of launching your, B, your B2B marketing and you read a checklist, we wanna create white papers, we wanna create, you know, case studies, da da. And then you might find that no one in your market wants to read that. What they actually love is short form video explaining what you do. What they actually love is sort of snappy aphorisms. What they actually love is sort of conversations that they can listen to in the car. Then that's what you need to create. So don't be too fast to create materials. Spend a little bit more time kind of just taking in the information that's already out there that is being consumed. And then maybe there's something that you can contribute to that that makes sense for your company and your brand as well. Yeah, and that also helps with education too, right? Because now you're not trying to explain to them something in a different language, right? You know, it's I think uh, jargon and especially in the medical community, there are different languages. Mm -hmm. I, I joke, I've said this before. You know, I spent my whole time in oncology in the medical field, and yeah. anytime I saw a neurology note, I literally. First of all, I felt like I was reading a different language and I literally mm -hmm. had Google up and I'm every other word I'm just Googling because I have no idea what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying that there were, it's just, it's just, it's a completely different language. And the same thing with oncology, like when people are reading oncology notes, it took me a good solid month of working full-time in oncology to be mm -hmm. able to get to a point where I could just read a note and understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. And so like each specialty has their own way of talking. Each specialty has their own jargon. And jargon, for the most part, is I, I, you know, when you're talking to a patient or whatever, it's it's good not to use it. But when you're when you're trying to mm -hmm. a, attract a specific person, jargon can really help attract that person to you because then they see like, oh, yeah, okay, this person speaks like me. They understand my, they understand what I'm going through. They understand my profession. They understand my niche. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. I also think before you go into conversation with someone, spend a couple minutes doing research on them and get a sense of how they might want to converse with you. So to give an example, if you, so one of the things we do in our tool is we also list publications and things like that. And what some of our customers do is before they go and talk to a provider, they're going to look up, you know, is this a person who's publishing on Twitter every single day, or is this someone who, you know, just brought out four papers and they're going to want to have a different kind of conversation with me. So you do have to tailor it, you know, often in the moment you might recognize, okay, this is not working. I need to take a different path, but do it on the sort of industry level, but also do it on the person level, I think. Then you'll really see results because not everyone is the same. 
not everyone enters conversations with the same energy level. So if that's not matched, that can also be very uncomfortable, hmm. right? If someone's super feisty salesperson meeting absolutely exhausted surgeon who just did a 12 hour shift, it's not going to be a match, right? So thinking about all those pieces, and there's a lot of information out there that can give you a sense before you walk into the moment that you can utilize. Yeah, I love that. And that kind of goes back to, I mean, marketing, it's, you know, like all of these things are in a circle, like they don't live independent of each other, you know, your customer yeah. research will lead to how the customers talk, speaks and how you should approach them. And then that can lead to trust and that will hopefully lead to sales. And then, you know, mm -hmm. a company that will last longer than, you know, your seed money runs out. Right. <laughs> That's the hope for every company. Yeah. So, um, what kind of customers, uh, so a couple of questions, a, how do they, how do they, how can somebody sign up for, um, you know, your software, or if they're interested, how do they reach out to you? And then what kind of customers are you guys uh, reaching? Uh, what kind of customers are you look, is looking for? Yeah. 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 So we primarily work with med tech and digital health companies who are interested in reaching out to healthcare providers directly, right? So that can be to find their KOLs, that can be to show them their product, that can be for market education purposes. And the companies we work with, as Paul mentioned earlier, they're typically startups and SMBs. So they're leaner, they have, you know, folks on their team who wear a couple hats and who want to use a tool to really strategize. And um, to find us, I mean, our website or us personally on LinkedIn, we're very active there. But, you know, alphasofia.com, we also have lots of videos and more information about our product so that you can take a deeper look and then decide if you want to have a conversation with us, if it's the right thing for you. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, guys, definitely, if you guys are interested, definitely reach out. Um, we do have a little bit of time, and I do want to touch on this because, uh, Isabel, mm -hmm. you do have a background in user experience, and I find that really, I find user experience really fascinating. Um, so when you're building a product, what is that you like how when you're building a user experience what what steps does one need to take because i think I, I don't know if i'm asking this question properly because you know there's a lot of times a product comes out and it's just so incredibly hard to use and it's you know people have done research they've talked to customers and this and that and it still happens why does something like that happen and how can somebody reverse reverse that hmm. so you're saying it comes out and it's already too complex to use despite the research having been put in mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, probably a couple things went wrong along the way. And I think the first thing that, that I would suspect, and I'm doing a sort of, a, you know, a distance diagnosis here, right, of a hypothetical product. But um, I think what often happens is that you're trying to do too much within one product. So when you're launching, you should do almost embarrassingly little. You should solve very concrete problems. And then you can build from there. See, a lot of products come into market and they... What I see, for example, all the time, my favorite kind of website is the, it says the all-in-one solution for X. <laughs> What's the all-in-one solution? That means nothing properly or everything perfectly. And likely it's, it's the former, right? Nothing really properly fleshed out. Um, so I think what people have done is they've thought about sort of the, the product they want to build and not listened quite enough to the customers and, and seen what is the first flow, what is the first value we need to generate. So that would be my suspicion that it's just doing a little bit too much. There's a lot of complexity there that's created on the tech side and on the UX side. And that's very difficult to walk back because taking things away is much, much harder than adding them on. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think that, uh, and is that, was that the, I'm, I'm assuming that's one of the exercises you guys went through too, right? I think it's really, it's really easy to fall into, it's really hard to be really concise and really small <laughs> and really, because I think the, the, what people think is like, oh man, you know, people are going to think that we're, we don't do anything. We're just too small. Yeah. But in, actually the, the opposite is true. Like, I mean, look at your phone, right? How many apps do we all have on our phone? And they're all very singularly focused, right? Into what they do. And we don't have like a one, one app that does everything, right? I mean, mm -hmm. how many of us have like multiple messaging? I mean, I, I have like five, <laughs> you know, for, oh, wow. different, yeah. for different things. I'm not, I'm not saying for different groups, presumably. Yeah, right? exactly. But you wouldn't have one that bundles. I think we did that. So we, we definitely, I mean, the product where it is now, and we were reflecting on this um, actually earlier this morning because it's kind of the end of the year and you get a little sentimental of where we were at the start of the year and how much the product has grown. And it's, you know, now we're having difficulty fitting everything into one demo. Now we have to think about that. 
initially it was very clear what we did. We said, you can slice and dice the market in this way. We had a very specific value proposition. Um, and that really hasn't changed. Everything that we've added builds on the value proposition and adds more depth, but it, it's really depth, not breadth. I think that we, we've added. Mm. Another thing we've, we've done quite a lot, especially in the really early phase of building the product, whenever thinking about product components, like, I don't know, how does the search bar look like? Those simple things. Um, um, how's the, uh, how, how are the different sections of the screen utilized uh, with functionality? Um, what we always did was like, what other tools have similar uh, path? Like, I don't know, where can you search? By multiple criteria, um, and how do you enter there? Do you uh, how do you design that? So for example, we look quite a lot, to be honest, at LinkedIn and how they do search and how the LinkedIn main product differs from the LinkedIn Sales Navigator Pro product, and so on. Uh, and of course, took some inspirations from there because we knew quite a lot of our customers are already using that. So if we if we build components uh, uh, which are not completely different, uh, where we don't need a different uh, functionality, let's keep it uh, where the state of the art, uh, um, uh, yeah, what, what state of the art in the industry currently is, because it just makes it much easier for customers to to get onboarded really quickly. Uh, and we are now seeing that for with each customer, we are doing a one-hour onboarding session, and usually, and in that onboarding session, the customer is navigating through the product for the first time. And uh, I'm usually doing that, and I'm just giving hints and advice. And usually, after 50 minutes, the customer is actually ready to go. And then we use the last 45 minutes of just building first use cases and having more of a strategic discussion. What could be the next step uh, in the commercialization um, uh, path for that particular company? But it's like. It really amazes me how fast our customers get up to speed with the solution. Uh, and that in the end also is a big selling point because um, we know how the industry is and sales teams, people uh, leave the company, new people are hired, people need to be onboarded uh, and everyone has so many tools already in their tool stack. So it's a liability if your product is too complex and, and, uh, and managers are feeling afraid of actually uh, training, continuously training their, their team on, on that solution. So. Being simple is a big feature um, uh, um, uh, for software solution. No, yeah. It's, yeah, it's such a good UX hack to really borrow from the greats. You know, I don't reinvent the wheel, um, especially with early products. Sometimes you'll need to customize things, but if you have a growing also UX team and you have you know too many components to manage, reeling that back is going to be enormously difficult and and very painful to do. So, but sort of clean and then you know if things are working well and you know your customers are familiar with certain products then borrow from that and then you'll get sort of the the bonus of that brand as well because they have some recognition when they look at your interface yeah 100 that's like one of the first things i tell people is when they're building a new product there's a it's called an industry standard for a reason it's the standard mm -hmm. way of interacting with certain components or certain things or certain things are supposed to be in you know the top right corner top left corner don't start moving yeah. things around just put it where they're supposed to be you know what the real thing is the the ro the, it no one cares about great design if it's hard to use you know there's mm -hmm. a there's a really famous quote great design is what you is great you know it's great design when you don't even see it or you don't even feel it like it's it, it just mm -hmm. shuttles you through and i think people try to overcomplicate things because they're excited right and they want it to be like new and exciting and whatever but really just like you said it's a great hack just use you know what other companies are doing bigger companies than you just use what they're doing. It's familiar to the customer. It's onboarding is so much easier. You don't have to sit there having an hour long session of how to use a product. It's more so like, Hey, now you know how to use the product, but you know, let's, let's try to build like use cases for you. Let's get you started right away. And then from there, they can kind of take it on. And yeah, I, I love that. I, I tell that to a lot of people as well. It's just, just use what's out there and don't complicate it more than it needs to. Yeah. There was a quote in a previous company that I worked at. I can't attribute it anymore, but it said, um, Great design is when not there's nothing left to add, but there's nothing left to take away. Like I nice. love that. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, so uh, we have a couple more minutes left, and I do want to ask you guys one last question. Um, you know, both of you have amazing experience, uh, but with all the experience you guys have now, what in what advice would you have given yourself at the start of your career? Paul, you may start. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, let me be totally honest. Uh, um, I think 
if I could talk to my 18 year old self again, I would tell him just start building earlier and maybe fail a few more times, uh, but just practical experience of building stuff, um, figuring out how it works in the market, uh, how users of that uh, respond to that. That's just, just so valuable. I mean, what, what I'm realizing, I mean, doing something yourself is so much different compared to, um, um, I don't know, consulting someone. And I was a consultant for five years. Uh, it's just it's just different being in the driving seat and and uh, building something from scratch and uh, at the same time I mean it's a big roller coaster yeah <laughs> you have you have positive moments you have negative moments uh, but that roller coaster if you if you just keep on working and keep on trying and keep on failing and then uh, the winds are also coming and I would just time tell myself start earlier and try little things get things out there don't be afraid of things which might embarrass you in the beginning, uh, uh, just try and, uh, and do that as early as possible. And you can, I think you can do that while studying, while going to school. Uh, you can always have a little side project, just try stuff out. And uh, that would be my advice, just uh, start building. And uh, um, don't be too academic about that as well. Yeah, just try to get something together and get it out there. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's going to be tough to follow. I think mine's a little bit different. I think my experiences that I always had a lot of a lot of worry about sort of the things I didn't know or sort of what would come next. But what I found was that if you follow your interests, if you really go deep on your interests, you discover more and more things that, you know, a year ago you didn't know about that now you're very passionate about. So mine would be kind of embrace your bliss a little bit and, and kind of go deep on the topics that really excite you and, and have trust that that opens up more career opportunities, more things that come your way that you can make a real contribution to. No, yeah, I, I, I love both those things. Both those things are things that I actively tell myself as well, you know, just put stuff mm -hmm. out there to start. Cause I think a lot of times we, uh, it's like analysis paralysis, right? You know, I think mm -hmm. uh, me being in the medical field, all we do is we're told to research everything before we start. Right. And that was crippling me to a very big extent. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I love that. And in terms of like, you know, following your passion, especially when you're building a company, I think that if you're building something that you're really passionate about, it's really hard to stop building it. You know, you'll find a way to figure it out. Um, if you're just doing it for the money, right? Like I said, you know, in the United States, we spent $4.5 trillion. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really enticing for people that are just trying to come in and make a quick buck. But I think a lot of people are finding out, especially in medical in the medical field is, in health tech is, it's really hard to make money really quickly in healthcare. And you really need to really care about the problem and you really need to want to solve the problem uh, and that's the only one way you can survive. So yeah, both of those are, that's great advice. Um, if anyone wants to find you guys, what's the best way of reaching out? Is LinkedIn the best way? LinkedIn's fantastic or our website, alphasofia.com. It's so alpha with PH and then Sophia with PH too. Well, yeah. Paul, We're yeah. happy to chat with absolutely any listeners. That'd be really fun. We love learning about, you know, health tech companies and hopefully we have some things we can share and value we can add to. Most definitely. Well, Paul, Isabel, I really appreciate you guys' time. Uh, this was an amazing conversation. I could probably go on for another hour or so. <laughs> yeah. These are these are topics that I love talking about. Uh, but thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks.